Well, another reason uh, we sang from Psalm 86, Selection B, is that uh, this morning's sermon text uh, comes to us uh, in 86, Psalm 86. And so we'll be reading Psalm 86. But before we read, I would like to um, just say a few words about, about this psalm. We find Psalm 86 in the third book of the Psalter. Uh, book 3 is really an expression of the lament of Israel. Uh, and we find allusions to the persecution that they faced from the nations which surrounded them. And, and we find that culmination in the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, their exile, and their Babylonian captivity. And so the, the voice of the psalmist in book 3 uh, is typically coming from the sons of Korah or Asaph. They are uh, the primary authors of book 3, and they're lamenting on, uh, on behalf of Israel about the affliction that, that they are facing. Uh, but Psalm 86 is unique in book 3 in that it's the only psalm in book 3 which is written by King David. And it's his prayer to God while he was experiencing personal affliction. And so we should ask ourselves, what is the purpose of this? Why uh, has God in his wisdom placed Psalm 86, this psalm of King David, right in the middle of book 3? And I believe, uh, at least in part, it's as if God is, in response to his people's cry for help, is saying, here, listen to King David. Listen to his prayer. I want you to pray how... King David prayed. I want you to pray how my anointed king prayed. And so it's really an example for us in our afflictions of how we are to go to the Lord. And so I invite you to listen to uh, the prayer of King David. Uh, this is God's holy word. It's infallible. It's inspired. Um, it is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here now, Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. 
and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered here today to hear from you, uh, to be encouraged by you, to be comfort, uh, comforted by you, and um, to good works. And so uh, we trust in you. We trust in your spirit who works in our heart. Uh, so we ask that you would be pleased uh, to work in our own hearts this morning. Uh, the words that I speak, things of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight. And that it's in Christ's name we pray. Well, why does God want us to listen to David's prayer in the time of our affliction? What is it about David uh, that uh, we should be um, recognizing? Well, we need to ask who David was. Now, consider the similarities between King David and Jesus. First and foremost, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who loved the Lord. He was a man who worshipped the Lord. He was a man who served faithfully. David was a king of Israel. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was given the ability to protect Israel in their religion and worship of the one true God. He defended this worship among pagan nations, among pagan influences in Israel. But David was also a man who experienced great affliction during his life. There were men who, from the beginning of his reign, were seeking to overthrow his kingdom, who were really seeking to overthrow the kingdom of God. Thank you. Uh, he was betrayed by his loved ones. His son even sought to kill him and overthrow his throne. And King David was mocked. And so we see that the life of David was really a foreshadow of the life of Christ. He's what we would call a type of Christ in the Old Testament to point our eyes toward God's true anointed servant. But one commentator said this in his book on the Psalms. He said, according to the witness of the Bible, David, as the anointed king of the chosen people of God, is a prototype of Jesus Christ. What happens to him happens for the sake of the one who is in him and who is said to proceed from him, namely Jesus Christ. The same words which David spoke, therefore the future Messiah spoke through him. The prayers of David were prayed also by Christ, or better, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner David. And so it seems to be a consensus within the church that Psalm 86 is not simply David's prayer, but it's ultimately the prayer of Christ. And if that is the case, if that is what is really being presented to us, which I believe it is, God is showing us that in our time of affliction, we need to seek to pray. But we need to seek to pray in a manner that is similar 
to Christ, God's true anointed servant. And so in the midst of your affliction, pray as God's anointed. In the midst of your affliction, pray as God's anointed servant. And there are many things that we can observe about how uh, David or Christ prays in this psalm. But we're going to look at just three this morning. And the first is this. In your affliction, you must pray as one who understands his need for God. In your affliction, you must pray as one who truly understands his need for God. Perhaps you know the expression, before you can find a solution, you have to admit that you have a problem. And this is particularly true in the community of drug and alcohol recovery. Uh, There's another expression in that community called hitting rock bottom. It's when a person has been brought so low in, in his addiction that he finally becomes willing to ask for help. He or she finally recognizes Uh, his or her need for help. It's often when uh, everything is lost, when a job has been removed, uh, when the home is broken, when the family is gone. It's it's the moment when this individual recognizes that I can't do this on my own. I, I need assistance. And in a sense, this was Israel's experience during the Babylonian captivity. God, in his grace allowed them to experience the consequences of their sin. And I say it's an act of grace because we know that it was this affliction that prompted uh, the faithful remnant of Israel to return to their God and to cry out for his deliverance in the day of their affliction. And I'm guessing that most of us here have had those moments. Perhaps you've experienced addiction yourself, or a besetting sin, or maybe it's just a prolonged illness or the grief of the loss of a loved one. And if you've experienced this, you've likely experienced the truth that God uses these afflictions to remind us of our need for him, not just physically, but spiritually. And just as a word of of caution, the disclaimer here. What I'm not saying is that uh, all of our affliction is brought on by our own sin, and certainly that is the case. Much, but it's not that all of the troubles we face in this life are, are a direct result of the things we say or believe. And this is what Job knew. But I think we can all agree that affliction, no matter what the cause, is always meant to humble us. It's always meant to drive us to God. And this was something that Job had to learn. It's something that we have to learn. And so Psalm 86 reminds us that we need God, and it reminds us in what ways we actually need God. Verse 14, David expresses the fact that His present circumstances aren't good. They're actually life-threatening. He says that there are insolent men risen up against him, seeking to take his life. But that's not really the focus of of this prayer. 
Now, he's bringing this concern to God, but if you read through the Psalms of David, you understand that there's this underlying, and we see this in verses 3, 6, and 16, where David prays for the grace of God. And despite David's circumstances, which were dire, he did not lose sight of his greatest need, which is, and this is because David was a man who recognized his own sin. He was a man who saw his own heart as falling short of the glory of God. I'd just like to remind you of what he said in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in you, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world with many problems, many difficulties, and it can seem that at times life is just a long list of things to do, things to take care of, things uh, to, to solve, never-ending list of needs which need to be met. This can cause us to lose sight of our greatest need, which is for God's grace, for his mercy, and for his forgiveness. And when we have forgotten that that is our greatest need, we have forgotten that we have already received God's grace and his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, life becomes a chore. Obedience to God becomes a burden rather than a loving service to him. Well, if God has already given us all that we need in Jesus Christ, if Christ himself has already given us all that we need, what is it that he needed? Now, how is it that he could have prayed this prayer? Could the sinless Son of God really have felt the need for God's mercy, for his grace, for his forgiveness? I mean, in a sense, it, it almost seems blasphemous to say that these are the words of Jesus. Another commentator says this regarding the Psalms of David, which I think provides clarity into this difficult truth. He says that Christ, in the day of his passion, standing charged with the sin and guilt of this people, speaks of such their sin and guilt as if they were his own, appropriating to himself those debts for which, in the capacity of a surety, he had made himself Jesus took our sins and owned them. Our sins became his sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. You see, Jesus, as he lived in this world, he prayed for grace and mercy and forgiveness because in his humiliation, which existed in his incarnation, in his very existence in this fallen world, uh, in his persecution, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, in all of that, he felt 
the true weight of the sins. Jesus alone understands the depth and the weight and the cost of your sin. That he alone knows the depth. And so he alone understands the depth of our need, of our need for him. And that's why Psalm 86 is able to uniquely express this depth of understanding. That's why the prayers of David, the prayers of Christ are given to us because it it helps us to shift our focus into the truth of our situation, the truth of our need. But perhaps more importantly, Christ not only understands our need, but he understands God's wonderful provision for his people. And the psalmist is able to express this in Psalm 86. He's able to express it because he knows God and he trusts God. And so in the time of our affliction, we need to who know God and trust God as well. In your affliction, you must pray as one who knows and trusts God. As I said, we see in, in this psalm in verse 2 and verse 14 that David's life is threatened. He's in physical danger. And as you would imagine, this causes emotional distress. Uh, in verse 4, he says, Gladden the soul of your servant, Lord. Uh, he's in anguish here. Yet despite the circumstances he finds himself in, he's still able to trust in God. In verse 2, he says, Preserve my life, for I am godly, Savior, servant, who trusts in you. You are my God. And I think this is a, a lesson for us. How do life's circumstances affect my trust in God? Uh, how is my faith in the Lord in times that are good? Sometimes this is a a temptation for us to uh, lose our trust in the Lord and start to think that we are powerful than we really are. And how is our faith in the Lord when times are bad? Are we easily swayed in our faith? James says it's like a man who's tossed about in a ship on the ocean, unstable in all his ways, double-minded. And I think we have to admit that, that this is us. This is us as we walk this life and we grow in stability. How how do we grow in stability? How does God tell us to grow in a more stable, more mature, more consistent faith and trust in him? And I think we are to turn our thoughts to God. And we have a, a key to this in verses 8 through 9 where David um, declares who God is, what he has done, and what he promises we need to reflect on who God is, what his character is. And we see a number of his attributes in this psalm, but I just want to point out uh, what David pointed out, which he grabbed from Exodus 34. He says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And, and we're to read that, and we're, gonna, we're, we're to take that to heart, and we are to, to respond to that. And there, there's a, uh, an incorrect response to that, which I think we're guilty of, but certainly um, the broader church seems to be guilty of this, and, and it's really what we, we call antinomianism. Right? It's, uh, it's the conclusion that if God is 
a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, well, then it doesn't really matter if I sin. I'm all good. Now, God is not uh, a negligent parent. He's not a teacher who doesn't mark off for incorrect answers. And yet he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and this truth is meant to bring us to God, and not to um, give us an excuse to walk away from him, to um, overlook our sin and excuse ourselves. And, and we do this without even recognizing it. Paint over with God's love. And that's not what he calls us to do. And he calls us to reflect on what he has done. And certainly we are to go to the Bible and we are to read of what he did through the history of Israel. We are to read of what he did through his son Jesus Christ. But we're also to reflect on what God has done in our own lives. How did I get here? Who are the people he introduced me to? What are the ways in which he moved me in this life to bring me to this particular point uh, to be and I think that this is, is a wonderful way to direct our attention toward him and to recognize how great his works are. There are none like yours, God. Our memories can be a gift in that way. And finally, we're to reflect on what he promised. That God promises to create a new heaven and a new earth and a time and a place where there will be no sin. There will be no more tears, unity, and we will all live before the face of God, and there will be no more affliction. The streets will be paved, and we're called to know God as our Savior. Verse 13 reads, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. See, God's love can only truly be seen through one's own spiritual resurrection. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the love that you need to know. If you don't know this love, you will know God's wrath. If you don't know this love, you must repent. You must see your sin for what it is. But you must turn and you must put your trust in Jesus. And know that in him you have forgiveness of sin. This is the only way that we can ever, there's nothing we can do apart from the Lord Jesus that brings any satisfaction to God. And we all know that we need to live in a way that pleases God, don't we? And so the psalmist reminds us that in the day of our affliction, we need to pray as those who desire to please God. In the day of your affliction, you must pray as those who desire. Well, if you've ever talked to a recovered alcoholic or drug addict, they'll likely tell you that hitting rock bottom was the best thing that ever happened to them. Because for them, rock bottom was a wake-up call. It, it, it led them uh, to the point where they said, I need to get sober and I need to accept help. And that's what sends them on a new trajectory in life. And for the faithful remnant in Israel, this was their wake-up call, the exile in Babylon. It, it turned them uh, to repent and faith and a renewed desire to please God. And we see this in Psalm 86 as well. And we sang it earlier. 
Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Well, let me ask you, what is your ordinary response to affliction? What's your primary response to affliction today? If you're like me, it's, it's make it go away. How can I fix this? Uh, and we live in, a, in an age and a time and in a nation where we have many means. And praise God for that. And, and we should seek means. Uh, but what is the psalmist's primary response? It's teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And I think Micah 6.8 reminds us uh, just what that is. It tells us that the Lord has told us what he requires to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. For me, that's comforting. To know that when life seems to be falling apart, when things seem to be out of control, that, that God doesn't expect me to fix it. He doesn't ask me to fix it. He doesn't demand that I figure out a way to get out of whatever difficulty I'm in. By the same token, he, he doesn't ask us to make something of ourselves in this life. He doesn't ask us to be something great, and that's the message that we hear from the world. But that's not God's message. That's not his requirement of us. He asks us to be humble. He asks us to acknowledge our sin and to recognize our need for him. And, and in that, we recognize that he's given us Christ. And he wants us to turn to him. And he wants us to trust him. And he wants us to love him with our whole heart. And he wants us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And it's, it's comforting to know that God's will is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy. And that's why David prays for God to unite his heart. He prays in verse 11, Unite my heart to fear your name. And he does this because he knows that his heart is divided. That even though he has a saving faith in God, his heart is still torn between his own will and God's will. And we feel that, don't we? And the Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. He does the thing he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the thing he wants. Painful reality, but it's how God has made us this side of glory. And we should feel that particularly when I believe that in our affliction, that is the ultimate um, end to our affliction, to recognize this divided heart that we have, to call us to remember our need for Christ's saving work, and to give us the motivation to abide to God's law in a new way, out of love. And so we can recognize that whatever affliction falls upon us has come to us as a blessing because it prompts us to turn to God, to pray to God. And so he gives us Psalm 86 to tell us how we are to pray to him. That we are to pray as those who are needy. That we are to pray as those who know God because of what he's told us in his word, because of what he's done in our own lives, and we're to pray as those who desire to please God. And when we reflect on God's love for us, we recognize that God's will for our life is good, and that it is what we desire. And so in conclusion, the Lord gives us the laments of book three because he wants us to bring our sorrows. He wants us to come to him in our afflictions. He doesn't uh, dismiss the difficulties of this. He doesn't 
want us to dismiss the difficulties that others are having in this life. He recognizes it. But he gives us the prayer of Jesus, that we might know how to rightly pray to him, that we might pray to God as who we truly are, that we in Jesus Christ are in fact his anointed. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your spirit who applies it. We're so grateful that we can rejoice in your glory and look forward to the hope we have eternally. But we're grateful that we can taste that now. Uh, This day, uh, Lord, I pray that you would guide each one of us in our own difficulties, that you would use these difficulties to turn us to yourself, that you would use them to soften our hearts toward you, uh, build one another up. We ask all of this uh, through the love of Jesus Christ.